All right. Is this Hello, we connected? We are indeed connected. Hello. Hello, Gary. How are you? <laughs> I'm doing very well, considering the fact that I'm at Wiscon and the uh, hotel decided to leave my room set at 83 degrees before I went out this afternoon. Uh, but outside of that, I'm doing well. Well, sounds like it would be excellent if you wanted to culture yogurt in there. Which is, I think, what's happening on my bed anyway. Uh, <laughs> yeah, well, let's... How have you been? Oh, I've been fine, you know, doing all those kind of background business things that we do in our lives. I mean, yesterday from dawn till dusk was taxes, taxes, taxes. So that was fun. Yeah, you have a different schedule for that than we do in the States. Well, that and I'm horribly late. Because, yeah, you're on a calendar year. We're on a, what, what they call a financial year. Mm-hmm. So uh, I had to get my taxes done. In fact, really, I'm horribly late. They were supposed to be done by April anyway. Because uh, these are my 2008, 2009 taxes. And come 1st of July, I have to get on to my 2009, 2010 taxes. So these are the joys of business. And it's made more complicated by all of the editing work and all that kind of stuff. So, I was going to say that would complicate things uh, enormously because you've got well, – well, you're, you're an independent business essentially, aren't you? I am indeed. That's and so that uh, – and I, I have credit, you know, like creditors and there's all sorts of weird stuff like on a piece of paper. I mean, let's say I, I sell a book and I get paid $1,000. Well, of course, I don't get $1,000. For a start, my agent keeps 15%, so I get $850. And then I've got to give money to writers. Now, so that's fine. Mm-hmm. So $850 gets split and some of it goes to them, some goes to me. And there's the bit that at the end of the day is my income. But it's not even that simple because um, on top of that, it all comes in dri- weird dribs and drabs. So uh, there's, there's things like I'll get a non-signing advance, a uh, on-delivery payment, whatever else, and bits mm. of that are mine, bits of that are somebody else's, and I have to keep track of it all so that I know that um, what's mine to pay tax on, what's not mine to pay tax on, and all that kind of stuff. So it gets complicated. Nightmarish, in fact. Well, I, uh, the, the worst thing I think a writer can do is add up their hourly rate. <laughs> um, and... Uh, but 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 the good news, and I'm not sure this is true. I'm probably misrepresenting it. There was a, a legal decision which uh, a lot of academics, because academics make no money writing at all, mm-hmm. um, where some poet was challenged by the um, uh, Internal Revenue Service for having uh, basically never made any profits at all yeah. because of poetry. <laughs> right? And 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 the decision was that the poet sets this up essentially as an independent business, which always loses lots of money, yep. and they still had to allow the business expenses. Yep. Uh, so, so to some extent, there's the, the, there are tax breaks to being a creative artist, creative artist, or a critic or a scholar. Much less so, I would suspect, in the states than in most other countries. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, my accountant always told me with that stuff that here in Australia, at least, you have to show that you've made some turnover. You know, you can lose money. You could lose money every year, mm-hmm. but you've got to be making money. So if yes, you're, there has uh, to be some income. Yeah. Uh, so if, if you're sort of not uh, making anything at all, well, then then you'd be completely short of it. But I mean, I'm lucky. Probably about a third of my family income comes from uh, doing various editing projects. So it's not hard mm-hmm. to make the case. It's just, I mean, the truth is that I really hate being a small business. And so I don't pay attention to it. And I know sort of that if I was a sensible grown-up, I mean, I was talking to a friend of mine at work the other day, and she was saying she didn't want to grow up. And I'm going, well, if I were a sensible grown-up, I would do a little bit of work every week on this, like maybe 20 minutes, and then it would never, ever be a problem. Mm. 
But instead, I throw everything in a box and put my head in the sand and don't think about it for 11 months of the year and then go, oh my God, I've got to deal with this now. Ah, this is going to be horrible. Well, it's, I feel sorry for you because I did that a few months ago. Yeah. But what have you been thinking about in terms of our field? Is there any news that I should know about that I haven't heard about? I, I don't think so. I mean, I, I would have thought half the news out there would be coming from, from Wiscon itself. But I, but I did have this thought, actually, because I noticed something uh, mm -hmm. during the week. And I'm curious to know what you think about it, because it's not an actually crushing kind of, um, crushingly brilliant observation. But nonetheless, um, I saw this week that Ian McLeod has a new novel coming out from PS Publishing around about November or December of this year. Mm -hmm. And interestingly, also has a short story collection coming out in a few months from Subterranean Press. And this mirrors almost exactly kind of thing what's happening with Terry Dowling, who's an Australian writer, who has a mm -hmm. novel coming out from PS Publishing, his first one, coming out from in July, and a collection coming out from PS Pub uh, from Subterranean in about June mm -hmm. and July as well. Now, what it, what it made me wonder is, everybody always talks about doom and gloom in our field. I think it's a, a very happy little hobby we have. We can sit there and we, 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 we tally up our woes and look at everything that's wrong. Mm -hmm. And I, I stopped and asked myself this question. Do we live in a world where good writers are being unfairly marginalized and their careers aren't being as rewarding financially as they should, which is the glass half empty interpretation? Yes. Or are we living in a world where because of changes to the cost of means of production and everything else, writers who, other, who, who are worthwhile and interesting but would never have a commercial career at all are able to have a career of some kind. Because, you know, somebody like, like Ian McLeod, who's a mm -hmm. fine writer, has you know, been published by um, you know, major publishers in the UK and yes. in the US. And you know, I can only assume, though I do not know, and I you know, wouldn't want to you know, characterize it overly, that his books maybe didn't sell that well. I don't know. And so his last novel came out, last couple of novels have come out from small presses, and his next one is. So is this a case of, as I say, a good writer having a career they wouldn't otherwise have, or a bad system marginalizing writers who could do better? I suspect it's both. One of the odd things about uh, a, a situation like this, the small presses in our field, which are have in one form or another always been around, mm. uh, and if uh, a, a book prints 1,500 or 2,000 copies or sells 1,500 and 2,000 copies, uh, Looking at it from one angle, that is uh, not any way to make a living. No. Looking at it from the angle of most literary writers, the people who have gone through MFA programs, for example, yeah, yeah. that's not bad. Yeah. Uh, in other words, uh, it, it depends on what you're comparing it to. And I think there are probably three or four different ways of, of making comparisons. There is the bestseller market, which everybody insanely compares themselves to because mm -hmm. so few people few people ever get into that there is the kind of literary market most of which probably sells i would think a lot less than the average science fiction or fantasy mm -hmm. uh novel and then there's what we used to think of as the genre market which was a lot more somewhere in between it was a lot more reliable in at some points in the past than it is now mm -hmm. you know when uh when doubleday for example decided to publish uh, i don't know a half dozen to 12 science fiction novels a year uh Back in the 50s, everybody who read science fiction bought all of them. Yeah, uh, and, and and that was a substantial thing. Well, I don't think that uh, exists anymore. What? No. Well, I, I, I've always been concerned that, uh, not concerned, but interested that science fiction has, it probably is receding into a much more 
literary market in a sense where yeah. many good writers can get published and relatively few of them will get published in uh, what we used to think of a commercial fashion. I, I think that could be true. I, I also think to some degree, it's a very slight degree, you know, writers who might otherwise have been classified as part of that literary market uh, and not maybe sold millions and millions of books mm-hmm. are slowly sort of drifting in, into our field anyway. I mean, I look at the history of someone like Terry Dowling, whose work I like, and mm. who's a very, very good friend of mine, so I'm you know, hopelessly biased. Um, and I wonder if he might, at, at a different time, have been writing outside the field altogether, even though his antecedents are, you know, Jack Vance and Ray Bradbury and Cordwainer and Smith and whatever mm. else. I just think there's an element to what he does that is perhaps at one stage would have been seen as being seen as outside the field. But I think the assumption, and I have no idea whether Terry or any other writer makes this assumption, that if you're published outside of the field, you will somehow do better. The the, the classic, uh, uh, which I think is a myth, that if you can don't don't ever get labeled with genre or you'll never make any money. Mm-hmm. Um, well, don't you won't become Kurt Vonnegut if you get labeled with genre, probably. Mm. But uh, you won't become one of these absolutely unknown uh, small literary novelists who've published a couple of novels and editions of 2000 and get tenure in a a small college somewhere. Uh, In other words, I would say that uh, partly because of the community nature of our field, that almost anything that gets published in the science fiction or fantasy or horror area is going to get more attention than the average novel published in in, in the mainstream arena. That wouldn't surprise me. I mean, again, I don't you know, profess to any knowledge of the subject, but um, that 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 feels true. I mean, I kind of feel like it's perversely a good and a bad time to be being published. You know, I don't think it's a good time necessarily to be making money, but it's not a bad time to get read. And I, I think you know, someone like Cory Doctorow has you know m- more than his share of wisdom on some of these in some of these areas. And you know, he's the guy who goes around saying, you know, "Your worst enemy is obscurity." For I mean, you, you, what, what did I read him say, say this week? You can't monetize obscurity. This, yeah, was his, a, this was his argument for sort of giving away uh, e- e-copies of his books and stuff, which has worked very well for him. And I think mm. there's something to be said for that. I, I don't think you can monetize obscurity. Um, Some version of that has been said quite a bit in the past. This is one of the, mm. I mean, Harlan Ellison used to say something uh, fairly similar. I think one of, the, mm. one of the times when he quit the SFWA, it was – Along the lines of you people are too willing to live with failure, yeah. uh, and if you go back as I did once and and um, look at the Nebula Awards volumes, which yeah. forgetting the value of the fiction in them, they all almost always had introductions or year in review essays or most often symposia yeah. uh, for the last twenty years of various writers, and every year it's a different creative take on on how we're we're all dead, where our careers yeah. are over and nothing is going to happen for us again, yeah. and. The specifics changed, but the general feeling has always been the same. Um, and I, I don't know that this is any uh, economically any more tragic than uh, than several other periods in publishing history mm-hmm. have been. No, I, I don't know either. I mean, I sort of feel from you know, where I work that things are okay. You know, I mean, I, I the anthology field has gone through one of its periodic booms. And I have mm-hmm. this feeling we're going to get a little bit of a trough over the next few years. Nothing disastrous. I think you know we're going to sort of shift. Some books will slide down, just in marketing terms, to small presses, and some will drop off the bottom and whatever else. Mm-hmm. But, and that's what happens. And then I think probably in another five years it'll drift up again in some other way, uh, because there is think, a cyclical yeah, nature to it all. 
there's a cycle, a cycle to it. And the, the real way of measuring it, I suspect, is if it gets to the point where people simply give up writing, where mm-hmm. they decide I can, my career. Uh, the, the thing that always struck me as ironic in, in these Nebula volumes, and I, I reviewed reviewed them every year, mm-hmm. is you, you have the nonfiction section of it saying that the, the the field is dead, and then you have all these really good stories <laughs> that seem to say, well, people are writing anyway. They're well, yeah. getting published somehow. Well, well, there was always that feeling, and I remember having the discussion, and we've had the discussion before, but uh, having you know th- that view that you really need to split the difference, but uh, you know, split in two, the science fiction publishing business and the genre, because yes. they're not the same thing at all. You know, um, wow. that the health of Tor books, long may it prosper, or Subterranean Press, long may they prosper, is not the same as whether uh, Gene Wolfe is writing good novels or there's a great batch of short stories put out or whatever else. You know, um, I mean, yeah. and I mean, we'd all like to be. You know, earning the same kind of money that J.K. Rowling's making, but that's just not how the world runs, unfortunately. You know, I mean, I, and, no, it, it, but it never has been. This no. is uh, this is kind of a myth of the golden age, which you uh, are always running up against. That at some point uh, things were better. And again, when we and we've talked about this before, when we talked about the, uh, the days in the fifties when uh, Silverberg was publishing sure. hundreds of thousands of dollars a year to make a, a a barely living wage by by living in New York standards. Uh, I'm not sure th- there were a lot more venues to publish, but uh, what I would suspect is going on now is that more of what's getting published is probably better. I mean, I'm, I'm not talking about the classics. I'm not sure, talking sure. about uh, the thing. Okay, no, you know, more than human and, and childhood mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. that sort of thing. But if you look at an average issue of any of the um, zines today, including yeah. the, the the print zines. Uh, and the online scenes, you're going to find uh, a better quality of story than you found in most issues of Fantastic Universe or super science fiction or, or, or those things. Or, or uh, cer- certainly so- word by word, syllable by syllable, yeah, I think that's true. I think the basic mm-hmm. craft of – I mean, there are two different things, and uh, Bob and I, uh, Silverberg, have talked about it a little bit. There's a difference between the ability to tell stories, which is, a, which is one thing. Mm-hmm. And there is the ability to, you know, there's the ability to run words together, and the ability to run words together is undeniably improved. Whether the ability well, to tell stories is improved or not is a, is a debatable question. You know, I mean, I, I, um, yeah. The quality of well, there are different ways of, of measuring craft, I suppose, and, yeah. and and being able to tell a good plotted story is one of them. Mm-hmm. But I would think that. Uh, by most measures of simple writer's craft, the field is as healthy as it's ever been. Oh, absolutely. And just in terms of the quality absolutely. of work that's, that's being absolutely. produced. You know, but, and, uh, and one of the things uh, – I, I was thinking about uh, – this kind of comes back to the question we were talking about with uh, can you find 20 stories in the last 20 years that would represent what the Science Fiction Hall of Fame did. Sure, sure. And probably not, but if mm-hmm. – uh, again, uh, if, if you took – uh, 50 stories of the last 20 years, and compared them to 50 stories taken from a random period in the in, in the mid 50s. It, mm-hmm. it would certainly look like better writing. I think one of the things that's happened is that the assumption now, uh, in, in 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 at least in science fiction, is that you need to be able to write well, which was not always the assumption. Yeah, yeah, I think that's probably true. And there's all sorts and of I, mechanisms that I think to help you do that that didn't necessarily mm-hmm. exist. In the 50s as well. I mean, I assume. I mean, there weren't so many workshops and writers' programs and all this sort of thing, which I think help with basics of craft. 
Well, there was also a sense that you were not necessarily – today's writers are not always necessarily measuring themselves against uh, – Bradbury and Sturgeon and Clark and that sort of thing. They shouldn't be. Mm -hmm. uh, the field has moved on from that. I mean, one of the things that did occur to me, I was uh, thinking about, or I was talking to somebody about, and I don't want to get into this whole business of um, canons again, but, no. but but that whole yeah. business of lists of canons and that sort mm -hmm, of thing. Mm -hmm. And it occurred to me for a young writer today entering the field, they don't need a list of classics that they ought to read, uh, but it might help to give them a list of classics that they don't need to read. I mean, I would, shouldn't we put up? Shouldn't we get a list of ten science, ten really famous science fiction books that you don't need to read? Boy, yes. What would be on that? List? The, the, the least essential books. That's Not hard. Not necessarily I mean, least essential. Well, okay. Uh, the only problem with by, this is you begin to hurt people's feelings. <laughs> you um, know, I. I almost did a little sort of side podcast on this issue about, you know, wh when you say things and when you don't. And if I sit here and I say that I think so-and-so's book, which is famous, is one you can skip, which is what we're basically saying. And, and, and what, oddly enough, Charles used to do for me in conversation, I'd say to him, you know, like, I'm short for time, do I need to read this one? And he'd go, no. Um, and he may not have been right, but that was his opinion. Uh, there is there is the, the the diplomatic side of of naming the books you don't need to read, you know. But there are a number of famous ones that you could be well skipped. There are different reasons for not needing to read a book, and I'm talking sure. about somebody trying to understand the field the way it is today. It's a good idea to have some sense of. Okay, I'll name one. Okay. I think I, okay. I think a book that you don't need to read is the Martian Chronicles. It's got all sorts of virtues. There are individually wonderful mm -hmm. stories in it, but essentially almost everybody who's come within shouting distance of this field essentially knows what's in it. And if you've read a couple of the stories, you've pretty much got a sense of, of what you need to know about that. If you want to go on and, uh, and, and, uh, and, and write a story in this field, that's all you need to know about the Martian Chronicles. Okay. So, so let's say that I'm looking to for, 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 for the shortcut guide to, to understanding the field and everything else. Do I need to mm -hmm. read Bradbury at all? Um, it depends on what you want to do with mm -hmm. the field. I mean, this is this is what bothers me about the whole notion of canons is that every reader should have uh, is going to have a different set of things. There are of people who are, are going to absolutely uh, love Bradbury and want to write like Bradbury, and there are people who are going to read the Martian Chronicles. And I've talked to people like this, and I I, I love the Martian Chronicles. It was one of the first books I read when I was a mm -hmm. kid. And uh, it's got you know all the all the classic beautiful mm -hmm. prose. I'm not saying it's a bad book. I'm not saying nope. it's one you shouldn't read. But I have I've talked to any number of people who read it, and they said that's exactly what I thought it was. Yes. They came out of the book knowing very little more about the book than they knew going in. <laughs> that's fair enough, and I, I, I can see that. Do you need to read more than human? Um, okay, this is interesting because I think you do. Uh, I was going to say another one I'd put on the list is iRobot. I was yep. trying to think of of these. Um, Fix-ups. Yeah. Uh, and there are various kinds of fix-ups. Yep. And the Martian Chronicles, I think, is one of them. Yep. I think, uh, well, I, I, the Foundation series is yes. probably one of them. More Than Human essentially is three novellas, but each one alters the previous one in a way that, that makes an organic whole that doesn't happen with with the kind of uh, classic Van Vogt, let's say, Voyage of the Space Beagle. Yeah. Um, and so I was trying to think of uh, Canticle for Leibowitz uh, is – Something there's a novella at the beginning of it, which is the part that everybody remembers. But it, add, it the, the second two parts of it add enormously to what that means. So in other words, I think that in those cases you've actually taken a short 
uh, a, a shorter work and turned it into a, a, an actual novel. Uh, and that didn't mm. happen all the time. Uh, so it's it, it, it's difficult to say. And everybody, most writers I know actually hate the term fix-up, which yeah. I think was Van Gogh's term. Uh, and generally that's they, – they should hate it because – uh, when, when writers do that sort of thing today, they usually have a sense of how to structure a real novel and not just you know, well, build little also I, think, also, I think it implies something broken where, I mean, was it um, oh, uh, Le Guin who coined mm -hmm. the term story suite as, her, as so. her, her option or as her description? And that's not a bad description in some ways for that kind of short linked cycle of uh, shorter works that amount to more than that when placed together in book form. Yes, um, and uh, Liz Hand has done that. There's some uh, in, mm -hmm. in Saffron and Brimstone. There are these linked uh, mythological stories that are very effective. Yeah, uh, these are kind of uh, standalone uh, story. The stories, actually, when I'm thinking of, of either the Gwen stories or the Liz Hand stories, they both some of those fragments have clearly been anthologized yes. separately, yeah. and some of them have won awards separately from the other stories. Um, and that, that's an artistic decision, which which I think you should respect. Um, mm -hmm. I, I guess what I'm saying when you, I'm saying that there are things you don't need to read. There are uh, there is no one set of uh, texts that everybody is going to uh, yeah. find relevant to what their interest in the field I, is. These I, I think that's right. I think this is what, what what makes the whole concept of a canon actually a little bit misleading. You know, I, mm -hmm. it actually is. In fact, it's quite deceptive because. It, you know, when you talk about one, it, it suggests that somewhere in some very official, possibly kind of, you know, Library of Congress-looking-esque place, um, there is the official list in which is inscribed in stone the works which are canonical, and then everything you know, else is not. And yet the truth of it is it's some sort of hazy thing that, that's talked about by a group of people in a semi-casual way that – where the occasion – the conversations – often overlap, but not always, and there's no sort of definitive you're in or out, because there's no way to be in or out other than people talking casually. And probably never really communicating, and this is, mm. this is kind of the uh, issue I have. I mean, it, it, it seems to me there's a process that everybody who reads in this field goes through, and the first, the first decision you have to make is at some point you're going to start reading those works which were published somewhat before you started reading in the field. Uh, let's say you start uh, reading with uh, the fourth or fifth Al Reynolds novel, and mm -hmm. then you realize, I better go back and read the other ones. Yep. And that takes you back a few years before your reading experience. The second phase is going back and thinking, how many of those books before I was born do I need to read? Yeah. And then eventually you're you're getting all the way back to, well, how much – and that should not be the same list for any two people, I don't no. think. That's no, not I what reading is. Reading, reading is, not doing an, uh, doing, is not doing your assignment. It's, it's finding <laughs> well, things well, that you like. It's funny you should say that because there is an element that comes along every now and again when people talk about this stuff and, and uh, where it feels like people are talking about homework. You know, it's kind mm -hmm. of like you really should read this. You need to read that. And you're going, oh, now, you're not telling me it's fun. You're not telling me I'm going to enjoy it. You're not going to tell me anything else. You're telling me I need to have read it. Well, you know, do I need to have read Ringworld? That's a good example. That's another good example. Um, I don't think so. Yeah. Uh, in fact, I think if, if I'm a, a – sorry. If I'm a, a reader today in 2010, let's say I was born in 1985, so I'm, what, 25 years old? Mm -hmm. I need to read 
anything written before 1975 in the field? I mean, need. Not that I could get something out of it, not anything else, but do I need to have read it if I want to be a science fiction or fantasy writer today? Or if you want to understand science fiction and fantasy writing today, yeah. there are there are some some specific allusions to that tradition. And uh, I, th I think one of the things that's always intriguing about any reading experience is that if you come across an allusion to an earlier work and it makes you curious, you dig that out. Mm -hmm. uh, and that could be science fiction or it can be mainstream. I mean, I used to have this uh, – uh, I had a conversation more than once actually with, uh, with Gregory Benford about uh, the fact that he had – you know, alluded to Faulkner in his work very specifically, and uh, and some people I think may have been upset by the fact that he was writing out of a tradition that wasn't a pure science fiction tradition. And I think the point he made to me was that if you've got somebody reading the magazine of fantasy and science fiction and they go back and start reading Faulkner, is there any harm in that? Mm. Um, in other words, it's, it's satisfying your curiosity. If you read – maybe yeah. – I don't think people need to read iRobot, but if they read some of Cory Doctorow's iRobot uh, pastiches – if they get curious about the Asimov stories and it sends them back to those stories, that's fine. Yes, I think so. Um, I, I think so. I think but, I think too much is made of the the compulsory aspect of the, of the canon mm -hmm. in conversation. When the truth of it is that it's actually a very. I mean, honestly, I think there's an enormous uh, gift in being what I would call a somewhat of a naive reader. Mm -hmm. Yeah, you know, I mean, I look back when I was starting to, to read the field, and I didn't know there was a field. Uh, particularly, I had no idea of anything. I just went into. I mean, it's the same story that. Countless people would tell you, went to a library, mm -hmm. read a batch of books, kept reading, went to a book, you know, I knew enough to go to the science fiction shelf in the bookstore right. to find the books, but really that was it, and I was, I didn't know whether, you know, the space merchants linked to Ring World or didn't, and I wouldn't have cared, frankly, and, and every now and again I'd be happily surprised because I'd read something and go, gosh, that seems to resonate on that. But nothing that sort of led me to sort of you know vast sort of thematic explorations of the field, and cracking I mean, what, open canonical lists of work that would tell me about it, you know. Well, and yeah, whenever somebody says to me, "You must read this book," the you know the implied other half of that sentence is there are hundreds of other books which you don't need to read, and mm -hmm. that's kind of what I'm saying. Why don't we just be honest and start with the ones you don't need to read instead of telling people what they have to read? Okay, you don't need to read Ender's Game. I don't think you need to read Ender's Game. Absolutely. I think you uh, need to read The Forever War. The Forever War. Well, that's that's an interesting thing, and to some extent, you might need to read Starship Troopers, even though it's far from Heinlein's best novel, mm -hmm. and partly because some novels set up uh, dialogues and echoes that that reverberate for for decades afterwards. Yeah. Uh, the Forever War, I think, is one that that. that uh, and here, here's another test way of testing the Forever War, because I've talked to people who have read it very recently, young readers coming into the field. Mm -hmm. There's no sense that I've talked to that that novel. Couldn't have been written two or three years ago. Yeah, uh, it's it's an amazingly current contemporary yeah. kind of novel. Yeah, and I'm biased. I mean, show is a friend, obviously, but uh, but on the other hand, I think you're right. There are there are novels like Ender's Game. Let's see, probably think a lot more oh, yeah. that uh, that do one thing that's fairly isolated and they do it very well for what it is. Uh, but you know. It, not having read that isn't going to uh, keep you from understanding Greg Egan, for heaven's sake. Oh, Lord, no. And, and, and again, this is something else which I think you'd always bear in mind. I mean, it's something you touched on yourself. Uh, when we make these kind of statements, you know, it, it's too, you know, when you say need, need for to what end? Mm -hmm. You know, because everybody's exit strategy is different. You know, I'm looking to be a casual reader. He's looking to become mm -hmm. a hard SF writer. She's interested in something different. And so... Whatever he or she want, want from their own reading experience, that's what they need to be reading. And so for somebody, it's essential to read 
Sherry Tepper and CJ Cherry. And for somebody else, there's no reason to do it at all. You know, I think. That's exactly the point. About, that's, what, that's what I mean. Being a reader is, is forming mm. you know, your own set of canons. One of the things that happens again and again is, 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 yeah. is the uh, One Book, One City program. I think every city on earth has, has a One mm. Book, One City program. And the motive behind that is a very good idea because the real motive behind that, um, and we've done this here in Chicago every year, the real yeah. motive is to get a lot of people who don't read anything to read something. Yeah. To create a kind of social pressure yeah. about about decent literature that that really isn't there anymore. But on the other hand, it also implies that everybody has the same set of needs as a reader, and that's patently absurd. Of course, it is. It is. I mean, I guess to defend the center a little bit, uh, there are works which it is very useful for you to read if you wish to have a rounded view of the of the field. And I guess the question that that when you know, when you're talking about this, you need to answer is: Is that your goal? You know, if you want a rounded view, view of the mm-hmm. field, then you need to have read some Heinlein and some Clark and some Asimov and some Paul and some, you know, this and that and the other thing over the years. You know, if you're going to understand science fiction in the last 25 years, mm-hmm. you can't not have read Neuromancer, because it changed everything. You know, it, it was a, a a turning point work. Um, yeah, and, and and trying to understand modern fantasy without reading Tolkien is is absurd. rather silly. Well, okay, um, that's probably a fair way of putting it. And there are other works like that over time, um, but it really is it, it's sort of your mileage may vary. It really does depend on what you want. I mean, I had a friend of mine say to me recently that they'd read one Heinlein novel or two, and they didn't see any need to read him ever again. And part of me wanted part of me wanted to go, no, you can't say that. He's you know the greatest science fiction writer who ever was and blah blah blah. But but at the end of the day, for them, yeah. they were right. They don't need to read any more Robert Heinlein. I may not yeah, I mean I get I'm, I get frustrated in, in the academic world with uh, with people sometimes uh, this doesn't happen as much as it used to be. Uh, decades ago, yeah. when science fiction became popular in the classroom, some some poor hapless assistant professor, who may have specialized in Herman Melville, gets plucked out of the. And you're going to teach a science fiction course because we can get registrations in it, and and they they end up uh, sort of stumbling into science fiction scholarship, and write papers. And this still happens not as much as it used to. That that are egregiously ill-informed about the history of the field. Those people, if they're going to be students of the field, yeah, they should read everything. They uh-huh. should know the history of fantasy if they're teaching fantasy, the history of science fiction. They should have read Wells, Stapledon, um, you mm-hmm. know, Heinlein, Simak Clark, and so forth and so on, because that's their job. Yeah. And somebody who's going to maybe work professionally in the field of publishing needs to have a fairly good historical sense. But we're not you, you can't sustain a, a publishing or a writing career with those readers. No. Um, so, so by and large, the question I'm, I'm, I'm really curious about is what the constellation of actual reading is among uh, contemporary readers. And, I, and, and this is uh, complicated by what you were mentioning earlier about uh, writers like Ian McLeod coming out from PS where you have very small editions of books, mm-hmm. which means you, you cannot assume that there are 10,000 readers reading the same books. No. I don't know if you can assume that there are 500 readers reading the same books anymore, which is a lot different from what I said in the early 50s when everybody read everything. Well, yes, and, and this circles back, back around to exactly something you mentioned as well, which was you know the nebulas. Why were the nebulas different in 1967, 68, 69 to, from what they are today, as healthy as they are? Uh, and the key difference is that 1967 through 1970, probably every single member of SFWA uh, read 
the majority of things published. Certainly all the voting membership would have. Mm. And now they wouldn't likely have seen a plethora of things that are published. You know, I mean, in, in the mail the other day, I got two books. I got a chapbook of The Man with the Knives by Ellen Kushner, a beautiful uh, little thing, gorgeously printed, nice fantasy story set in her Swords Point universe. 400 copies from a small press uh, in the US, temporary culture. Most people will never see this, book, this thing unless the story gets reprinted. Mm-hmm. I also got This Is My Letter to the World by Kat, Kat Valenti, which in effect is it's, it's her first short story collection. And it's mm-hmm. what, 18 or 20 short stories, which she emailed to people on a private email list where you, know, you could subscribe and then you got the story. Um, original stories, nothing other than that. And in effect, this is their first publication, really. Um, and again, unless you happen to go to her website and see the ad for it so you can buy it from lulu.com, you will never see it doesn't exist Mm -hmm. and yet here are 18 or 20 stories that may be amongst the best of the year how would anybody know you know they they, they don't get to see them uh this is why some this is why those of you who put together best best of the year anthologies are probably more important than ever because uh i don't know of anybody who actually i know of very few people who try to keep up We've been making an effort to keep up with this sort of thing. Mm. Uh, to some extent, we want we want it filtered for us, and and even then, it's uh, just by looking at the, uh, the the differences between the various years' best volumes, you realize that all the filters are different. Yes, um, it's one of the. Th- whenever you think about award season, one of the things that's always fascinating to me is that there may be an absolutely brilliant novel or a novella or a short story which everybody missed, which nobody oh, yes. noticed. Didn't go. Didn't. It's not on the local recommended reading list. It never made anybody's year's best anthology, and I'm sure those stories are out there. Yes. Oh, yeah. Uh, I'm sure that books, novel, books, collections, whatever. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, nobody says that they're the comprehensive coverage of everything because because but that doesn't get past the fact that we're not. You know, there are always major works. The, you know, and some things, you know, if you're lucky, maybe they bubble up a year or two or three later and you go, oh, I really wish we'd seen that left field thing over there. Mm-hmm. Um, and yet somehow, you know, we didn't, we wanted to, we meant to. Uh, because it's always very easy to keep your eye out for anything that comes from a major publishing house or a big, well-known independent publisher. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, someone like Subterranean or Nightshade or even PS just to an extent if you're within the field who do smaller editions but still. Um, they're known to us. We know to keep an eye out for them. We and we know that Tor are going to mm-hmm. do books and Ness are going to do books. But you know, uh, temporary culture. I would say the fair chunk of people wouldn't know. Now it may be that people right. listening to the podcast will sort of sit there and go, "Well, I know about them." And I, but that's because you're whoever you are who's listening. You're one of us too. You know, there's maybe 100, 150 people listening to the podcast, and hello to you all. Um, but the, but you're all insiders and interested people in the field. For the vast majority of people, you know, you wander into the bookstore and you pick up something of interest. And if the bookstore doesn't hasn't happened to be contacted by somebody or other, you know, it it, it you and, you never and, see and, that book. Yeah. And, and and the other characteristic of I think most readers uh, is that they're not reading month by month for the news stories. And I'm, th- I'm no. thinking of friends of mine who are casual readers of science fiction, mm. and they may be uh, just this year discovering cryptonomicon mm-hmm. uh, and saying this is really great uh and and the fact if, if, if actually if, if you look at the residual sales on a lot of novels like that you get a sense of how many of these things a friend of mine at uh, i may have mentioned this before but a, a friend of mine at, uh, at at the university just recently discovered jack vance yeah and nothing wrong with that at all 
Mm-hmm. But the, the, the insider uh, mentality that you're talking about more or less assumes that we have to catch everything the year it comes out. And then you have uh, – you, know, you, you get another safety net with year's best anthologies and awards. Mm-hmm. And after that, after that, the novels are dead. That's nonsense. After that is yes. when those novels start actually having their afterlife. Yes. Um, when, when you begin to find out what novels actually are going to appeal to readers. And sometimes it takes a while. Actually, uh, as, as you mentioned, Ender's Game, as successful as it was, its initial success was, not, was actually nothing compared to what it has been since. Oh, I know. I know. It's gone on to be an enormous record. I mean, I, I should say, whatever I think of the politics in the book or not, when I say you don't need to read it, I, it's not because it's not worth reading or because it's a bad book. It's simply because I think that what it covers is covered elsewhere in, in other ways. But well, That's exactly uh, what I meant when yeah. I, brought, or I raised this yes. issue in the first place. I'm not saying that these are bad books. I'm oh, not saying not. they're books that ought to be ignored. I'm simply saying that uh, you don't need to feel the weight of all these unread books on your back anymore. No, you I can know. read whatever I mean, you want to. And, and then you sort of you get these recommendations from people, and they make you feel like you do. And, and when you're recommending, what you're trying to say is, when I read book X, whatever it might be, you know, I mean, when I read, say... You know, the Moton God's Eye back in 1976 or 74 or something. I loved it in 1976. And I just wanted anybody else to read it as well. You know, to spread that meme, you know, sort of take it across mm-hmm. to my friends and get them to read, get them to read. Now, how I feel about it now is a whole other other box and dice. You know, so it's, it is, it, it's, it's a strange and interesting thing, you know. So it's a wonderful feeling to have a novel that you just want to Shanghai people and make yeah. them read it. But uh, but then we all know that we have friends who have different tastes, and there may be a yep. novel that I love that uh, somebody who I like and respect very much is not going to have any response to at all. Yeah, and then you also get the, you know the sad part of this. When, I mean, when you get obsessed with following the you know the best of the year and everything, which is something you just alluded to, which is the the terrific work which gets no actual afterlife through unfortunate happenstance sales, mm-hmm. publishing, whatever it is. It doesn't get the afterlife. One of the books which always comes to mind is back in 1997 when I first moved out to live in Oakland and was reviewing, um, I read a Paul Preuss novel called Secret Passages. Mm-hmm. And I thought it was easily one of the best books of the year. I mean, in the top yes. three, four, five books of the year, I put it up there with Stan Robinson's Antarctica uh, as one of, you know, one of the outstanding books. Now, I'm willing to bet you today that book is out of print. I'm I know it is. Oh. I, 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 I talked to Paul about it, actually, at Charles's memorial service. Okay. And I thought he was one of the best novelists about science. And his, mm. his, his novels were not heavy-duty science no, fiction, but he wrote about scientists at work as well as anybody uh, in or out of this field. And I think that, yeah, I think his novels essentially are, are gone. Yeah. Uh, all of them. Yes, which is which, which is a sad thing, you know. Uh, and there's always that that fear, I guess, that that writers who are both well either important or just simply damn enjoyable uh, mm-hmm. will just up and disappear in a puff and sp- puff of smoke. And the one thing that's never there, and I, and I sort of wish it was, though I don't know how you do it, is the measure that comes along ten years after, say, and says, mm-hmm. "Hey, what, what's what's still bubbling away from you know 2000 or 1990?" You know, I'm willing to bet, you know, sort of one of Werner Vinge's um, Fire Upon the Deep books, still bubbling away, mm-hmm. finding new readers, whatever else. Whereas, and I don't know what I would pick as an example, you know, I wonder if David Brin is falling off the map, for example. Hasn't had a new book in quite some time. Mm-hmm. And as, as much as he's a science commentator and all that kind of thing, 
you know, uh, not really on the map these days. The other thing which I think is related to that are the, the – there are people who uh, seem to be very, very uh, trendy and popular, and in 10 years you can't find – and when I say you can't find anybody who's ever heard of them, think about the people who began reading during that 10 years. They're not going to see that. And then the other thing which is related to that are people who seem to uh, – whose, whose actual influence seems to emerge sometimes decades later. I mean, they might be successful writers. Jamie uh, – Jack Vance is a good example because I think he's uh, he's always been uh, enormously appealing to a, to a certain group of readers. But for a long time, uh, nobody thought that Jack Vance was going to influence anybody because what he did was so unique and so odd, such an odd combination of science fiction and fantasy. And then you began to look at Gene Wolfe novels, and mm -hmm. now you begin to get anthologies, uh, Songs of Dying Earth anthologies. Uh, so so now it's becoming apparent that he was one of the more influential uh, writers of the mm, science fiction and fantasy writers of, of the century. Very much. Um, so you can never really write anybody off. Uh, and I'm not saying he was ever written off, but... No. As, he he as was on the fade. Not a bad way of putting it. For a, for a while there, it looked like he was on the fade. And then, just as you can see with, say, Fritz Leiber right now. Fritz Leiber looks like he's mm -hmm. on the fade. N never will completely fade because Lankmar will keep him on the map. But, you know, mm -hmm. there's that, that risk. And there's a few other people that you look around at. And certainly 10 years ago, Phil Farmer and Jack Vance were high on the list of people that you would have thought, I wouldn't be surprised if everything was out of print in 10 years, only to find that, as you say, their influence was far more than we'd thought. And bam, back it came, which was awesome to see. Terrific to see. And, uh, yeah, and I think there are people who are still... Waiting that, awaiting that kind of resurrection, and I don't. I think Avram Davidson is not back yet. His work is very quirky, I suppose, by modern standards. Ari Lafferty may be another one, mm. <clears throat> but but there's enough uniqueness about those works, and you find some younger writers even reinventing some of these sort of genre mixing techniques mm. that they were doing, so, so so that their stories seem enormously relevant these days. Yes, uh, actually, one of the people I was talking to today was was Carol Imschwiller, who's oh, yeah. been doing things for 50 years that uh, that now are are, are are new all over again. Yes. Did she tell uh, you about I, I saw this thing this week since you, you asked about news and you mentioned her. It's great. It just came to mind. Did you see that Nonstop Press are doing her collected stories? We were talking about that. In January. Uh, How exciting is that? It's wonderful. Uh, being Carol, she is focused on whatever she's writing now. So she's, oh, yeah. um, you would expect that. Uh, it, it, it just she's very pleased that it's there. She's very pleased that she's suddenly uh, become a new writer again. And if you look at the, um, uh, I'm, I'm I'm blanking on the collection of stories. I am with you, or I am. Uh, oh, the one that was done by uh, Tachyon? Tachyon. Yeah, I know the one you uh, mean. I live with I live with you. I think it's called. Mm -hmm. uh, and those are great kind of postmodern stories. They could easily have been in the New Yorker. Yeah, uh, and yet. Uh, there and, and and they they she has reinvented herself. I mean, it was very interesting to talk to her about how she essentially had to reinvent herself after Ed died, mm -hmm. and she was she's very open about that. So I'm not taking anything out of what will eventually be a locus interview. Mm -hmm. uh, but what interested me uh, more than it did Carol, I guess, is that some of her stories from the early '60s and some of the stories that um, that that got her involved with with the new wave are in some ways just as innovative. Yeah, and those stories sat around for uh, 
a good several decades apparently waiting for somebody like a Mary Rickard or a Kelly Link to come along and sort of legitimize that sort of thing again. <laughs> yeah, I can imagine how that would be the case. <sighs> Tell you what we were talking about the other day, since 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 we can wander all over the, over the place in conversation. Mm-hmm. Here in the in in the backwoods of, of of the planet Earth where I live, we just finally got Apple's you know sort of uh, revolutionary new iPad. Uh, and two things came of this. I mean, I, I went out with my daughters yesterday and we got to play with, with one in the shop because they'd already, you know, sort of run out of stock in, in moments. Mm-hmm. And we were sort of talking about sort of ebooks, or actually, it was interesting. Actually, it came, came in different points. I was one girl, looked at ebooks, and she was sort of like, nah, yeah, fair enough. Didn't talk about them mm-hmm. at home. Then had a conversation online where we were saying, the one thing that I would love to see happen is I'd love to see some of these producers of. Uh, how would I put archival work? I guess is a good way to put it. Start mm-hmm. moving into producing ebook editions of things because now the ebook editions are becoming sufficiently worth reading and worth having and easy to read that it's really worth getting them. I mean, I know that say sub, let's say Subterranean are doing the collected stories of Robert Silverberg, and they're mm-hmm. reprinting the collected stories of Philip K. Dick, which I think is very exciting. Um, wouldn't it be magic to be able to buy a really nice, well-designed ebook edition of the collected short stories of those people. I think that'd be fantastic. I'd love it. I think it'd be one. Yeah, and, and uh, you're right, it's getting easier and easier to read these things. And yeah. To some extent, if uh, there's this interesting market where something that a few years ago would have been of interest to and available only to a scholar is now available to, to everybody. Yeah. I'm wondering what will happen now that the Theodore Sturgeon series of what, 12 volumes, 13, 13. volumes, yeah. uh, 13 volumes is is gone. It's not going to get reprinted. We're not going mm. to see mass market paperbacks of, of any of those. And yet uh, books that used to dis- disappear into the libraries that happened to buy them now could be available for absolutely no effort at all. Uh, minimal effort, yeah. Uh, minimal, minimal effort as an e-book. I mean, the thing that's, fasc- that's the thing that fascinates me yes. is that an e-book could very well contain all 13 volumes of the Sturgeon thing without... Oh, yeah. uh, well, actually, do you know Tell you something I'd love to get, and something that could exist. Um, the collected stories of Jack Vance. The collected mm-hmm. stories of Jack Vance would be technically easy to do because it's all been digitized and everything else. Um, mm-hmm. Could be brought together and put, you know, you get somebody like, say, a John Berry, who's a very good print designer, to do a little mm-hmm. a template for it. You pour it all into that and you sell it for uh, as an ebook thing. The Vance make money, the publisher makes money, whatever. But you'd be mm. able to have all the collected stories in a really nice, accessible version. I reckon that would be awesome, especially since, for various reasons, I don't think we're going to get a print version of the collected stories. We've had the VIE edition of all the books. We've got the books which are terrific mm. that Subterranean are doing. But no one's going to probably do, or if they ever do it, it'll be in 20 or 25 years' time, an actual collected stories. So I think that would be a fantastic thing, you know. Well, just co- keep- by, by collected, by collected, do you mean complete or do you yeah, mean complete. collected? But the complete. Okay, because I was one of the things that Carol uh, Imshuler was saying today is that she doesn't exactly, I think, know what the contents of her collected stories are. But she said, I'm pretty sure it's not all 125 stories. <laughs> but see, there's part of me at least, and this probably this is something which you know, when, when we talk about what, what you need and what you don't mm-hmm. find large, you don't need this. But there's part of me that wants the complete. You know. Um, and so I would very much love to, to have, you know, 
all these these books. And maybe whilst I personally would still prefer to have a really nice hardcover book, mm-hmm. if we live in a world where that's not practical, then hey, I'm willing to buy um, an electronic edition. Particularly, you know, I mean, I think almost everybody who's interested in the iPad would have seen the uh, version of Alice in Wonderland that was done. Uh, mm-hmm. And if, if not, go out and Google Alice in Wonderland for the iPad or something, and you'll see a short movie of this awesome kind right. of animated experience they've created as you read the book. And so just something that's nice and arch- archival and authoritative that you can keep um, would, would be great. I mean, personally, I'd also like to see a world where when I buy the hardcover of a book, I would be given the, the ebook. In fact, what I'd really like is a world where... Let's say books are coming out in June. So we're in, we're in just on the cusp of June now. Let's say August releases were coming out. Mm. I could go off and I could buy, pre-buy. I could buy the August August edition of the book, have it paid for and everything else. But they'd email me the book, you know, give me the ebook now. I reckon that would be awesome. I would be very happy with that. But you, yeah, you love books, and you I don't do. see books as disposable, and you collect nope. books. And I do. There are. Yeah, and and I I'm I'm somewhat guilty of the same thing. I mean, I like the idea. I mean, if I had an ebook option of looking at the um, collected complete stories of Carol M. Schuller or or Jack Vance or anybody else, I'd be fascinated by it because I'd have a morbid curiosity about those sixty or seventy stories that yep. aren't in the collected ones. In Absolutely. Other words, uh, the, the, there is the sense where if you're fascinated by a writer, you want to understand everything about the oh, writer. Sure. And also, uh, one, weird... of the, one of the anthologies... Uh, go ahead. No, you go ahead. Well, one of the anthologies which has been talked about a little bit here, and you can tell me what the title is because I'm... It was an anthology of first stories. Um, oh, first I... published stories. Yeah, I know the one you mean. I, I, honestly, I forget the name of it. it, it it's not the first mm-hmm. time the idea has been done, but this is one that everybody was... Irritated about and angered by because well, of the gender, gender imbalance. Yes. Well, the the gender imbalance was what started the discussion. But the other the other part of the discussion was: Is this a good idea? <laughs> uh, I think there was one. I think there was one decades ago. I think it was called Maiden Voyages. Oh Lord, no, there's uh, been there was, bunches of them. This is about yeah, the lots of them. Fifth, be the fourth or fifth. Marty Greenberg okay. did a couple not long ago. Right, and. The, the the question that's coming up is, again, if you're dealing with a fairly new reader in a field, do you really want famous writers to be represented by their most novice efforts? Uh, <laughs> for collectors like us, it's fine, but is it really – I mean I've uh, – I remember – I know I've read Bradbury's first story, yeah. and he, he's enormously embarrassed by it. Gene Wolfe does not like people reading his first couple of stories or his first novel um, for entirely reasonable reasons. But if you're a collector or a scholar yeah. or somebody who's interested in these writers, of course you want to have access to that. Yes, you do. Um, and I guess what I'd say, well, the first thing I'd say is that, I mean, really, I, obviously those books are not intended for a new reader. You know, any book that's mm. publishing the first batches of stories. I mean, I would never suggest to anybody that you go to, I don't even remember the name of, say, Lucia Shepard's first story or um, Lunchbox, which is Howard Waldrop's first one, which he, sold, which he sold to John W. Campbell at Astounding, of all places. You know? Wow. Yeah. Uh, these are not, you know, typical works, and certainly they're no longer typical works of them because they've had 30 years of craft put on top of, of that. So, you know, there's no real... I mean, what they are is they are of, my, of, of sort of that minor kind of niggling interest to someone who's really committed to the field. And I think that's how they're mm-hmm. marketed. I mean, in this case, this particular book, I would argue that almost nobody outside the field will ever see it anyway. 
you know, it, it's published by Paizo Publishing or Paizo Publishing. Something, so, yeah. It's, who it's are very much an in-genre publisher. You know, they really are. They used to publish, they published the, one of the Resurrections of Amazing Stories, I think, and they do some gaming stuff and everything. And they've mm. do, they're doing a lot of pulpy kind of titles from the look of it. Not not in a, in a derogatory way, but that just sort of seems the sort of area they're publishing in. And uh, so this book isn't going to really reach beyond that. But yeah, I, I agree. I think they're, they're sort of odd curiosities, but we do want completeness. I mean, I, I keep sort of looking around and thinking, you know, I mean, yes, I have the collected Roger Selesny now, and I'm very, very yeah. happy. And yes, I have the collected Ted Sturgeon. And I, I, I remember back in 1990, probably five, I guess, when they announced they were going to do it, how delighted I was. And I remember, in fact, I remember just to show that we can all be wrong. I, I remember as clear as that was yesterday, uh, going down to Emeryville with Marianne. Mm-hmm. And got, we went past uh, North Atlantic's publishing offices uh, because we had to do something. And coming back and talking to Charles about the first of these uh, Sturgeon Collected Stories books, and him saying, "Right, it's, you know, they're never going to last. They're never going to come out. You know, yeah. there's no way they're going to be doing this in 13 years' time." And you're going, "Well, you know, look, I was wrong. Charles was wrong. Yep, wrong, wrong, wrong. <laughs> you know, and I'm happy. But that's I'm happy to have. Oh, I'm, I'm, I think and, it's still and someone's supposed to be doing the collect. It's one of the uh, University Presses, I think, is doing a collected Bradbury, aren't they? Um, I don't think it's a University Press. There's a huge biography. Of, uh, there's a lot of stuff, but I'm, I'm not sure what the yeah. deal with that is. Um, but you know, Bradbury is 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 on that cusp between um, somebody like Nathaniel Hawthorne, <laughs> some genuine, you know, long-term American classic where people want to have everything, and 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 these areas that are of special interest to those of us in the field. Yeah. Uh, there's you know there, there's a spectrum of um, science fiction readers which is much blurrier than it is in the mainstream I think yeah. where uh, you do have these collector's editions you have the kind of thing that oh let's say Hafner would do you, mm-hmm. you have these ancient uh, collections of uh, Edmund Hamilton stories or uh, early Jack Williamson stories mm-hmm. which are absolutely fascinating beautiful editions um, there isn't anybody uh, in the mainstream, doing uh, the collected stories of Irvin S. Cobb yeah. from the 1920s, uh, because there isn't that kind of passion there. So, so in, in traditional literature, there tends to be stuff that's popular, stuff that's sort of more or less always mm-hmm. in print, um, and and stuff that's contemporary and and largely ephemeral. In our field, it's it's just all over the map. It's not you yeah, can't you can't make that distinction. Um, and and you suddenly you, you might have an occasional reader who suddenly becomes a passionate collector of something. Yes. Yeah. The other thing I was going to say, which is sort of semi irrelevant, I, I understand, but it's kind of circles around this. Um, I, I am always struck by how often we have a tiny group of people who are sort of talking to themselves, uh, and how we sort of blow things up in our minds to being enormously important when maybe they're not. Uh, and that 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 comes to the ebook thing because the other thing that happened yesterday with ebooks was. I was sitting uh, in my living room reading the Fuller Memorandum by Charlie Strauss. Mm-hmm. Um, he'd sent me a PDF, and I thought, I'm going to read this. I loaded it up on the new you know, Apple MacBook that I have and was 150 pages into it. And my daughter came in, and she said, what are you doing? And I said, I'm reading a book. Now, my daughter's eight years old and is currently battling uh-huh. her way through Harry Potter and the uh, Half-Blood Prince, I think it is, or one of those ones. Mm. And she says to me, why are you reading it like that? I said, well, it's, got, it's how I've got it. But don't you miss having a real book? 
you know. Um, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. Don't you miss having a real book? We've got, we've got, you've got lots and lots of them. Why would you read that one? And I'm going to I want to read this one now. But, but Dad, then you don't get the turning pages and all that. They're much nicer. That's the, that's the nicest thing I've heard in a long time. Um, well, well, this program that Susan Straub, um, Peter Straub's wife, has mm. developed in, in, in New York called Reading to Babies. It's, it's yeah. designed to help uh, you know young mothers uh, read with their babies. And one of the things that uh, it's important for the mothers to learn is that babies are going to want to tear pages and eat pages and that sort of thing. Mm. And it's learning to encounter a book as a physical object yeah. and not a sacred object. And most of us who are collectors, you know, the idea of dog-earing pages or, mm-hmm. uh, or, or cracking a paperback open on the table to keep the spaces uh, is, is a horrible thing to do to a collector. Mm. And I would, I, I would not do it to one of my 1953 paperbacks, certainly. No. But on the other hand, what your daughter is realizing is that books as physical objects are fun. Yes. And do we really want to lose that kind Not of fun? One. Well, I'll tell you as well. I mean, I have a – I was given as a gift a first edition of The Unpleasant Profession of Jonathan Hogue by Robert Heinlein, mm-hmm. right? I cherish it. I mean, it's not his most famous or his most expensive collectible book. I mean, you can pay eight or $10,000 for a copy of Stranger in a Strange Land or something. Uh, but I also have a copy of Harry Potter and the Sorcerer's Stone. Now, mm-hmm. in, in 1999, I'd passed through California. I'd sp- stayed with Charles. And he'd said, oh, mm-hmm. or, no, 1999? Yeah, 99, well, whatever it was. I uh, think that sounds about right. And he said to me, he said, you know, you sh- we need to check this book out. I haven't read it yet, but there's a lot of talk about it. And mm-hmm. I went to Staten Island immediately thereafter, and I got married. And we had our honeymoon in Manhattan. And we went to a Barnes & Noble in downtown Manhattan. And there's a huge stack of these books, the first novel. So I bought it. And I read it on our, on, on the honeymoon and enjoyed it. Brought it back to Perth. Put it away. Uh, it ended up my bookshelf. My, my wife pulled it out at some point and read it. And then earlier this year, I, you know, my eight-year-old daughter pulls this book out. And she's carrying it around with her to school. And she's, um, you know, she's read it. She's completely, it's the first big book she's read. Uh-huh. That, that, that copy of that book now is worth more to me than the Robert Heinlein book in some ways. I see what, exactly what you mean. That, that's a discovery that uh, I don't think we want to take away from people. No. Um, and um, it's, it's, it's not a matter of possessions. There's the other no. thing. Uh, I, I'm of two minds about ebooks for this reason. Mm. One is you don't want to lose that discovery. No. On the other hand, there's a sense that uh, there are a lot of books, and uh, there's somebody here in the States who just goes on um, you know, various websites um, uh, where they're free, gutenberg.com and that sort of mm-hmm. thing. And it, it, and just combines, compiles hundreds and hundreds of books and uh, public domain things and puts them on uh, CDs. Now, any of us could get those things ourselves. You, yeah. can, you can get them. You know. But the idea of putting them together, and I thought, well, okay, there are a lot of classics, a lot of 19th century collections of ghost stories, uh, things like uh, Edison's Conquest of Mars or mm-hmm. early classics of science fiction, which I want to. I'm perfectly happy to have those in ebook format because yeah. I'm only going to read them if I want to check out something or I get yes. curious. Uh, and to the extent that it saves me from having a lot of books that I'm really never going to look at or very seldom going to look at. I love the ebook. I love the fact that it has mm-hmm. gives yep. us access to things that don't take up walls and walls and walls of space. But the reason the other reason I like that is because then I can use these walls and walls and walls of space for books that I like to pick up and touch and yes. turn and, yeah. and flip around in. Exactly. Um, I agree completely. 
I've often had the experience of picking up a book uh, that I would remember. One of uh, I, it could be uh, it could be well, it probably wouldn't be Stranger in a Strange Land, uh, but uh, it might be The Lord of the Rings, or it might be Gravity's Rainbow or something. Mm-hmm. And, I'm not going to reread those things very often, but I'm going to pick yeah. them up and read around in them. And the one thing that you can do with a physical book is just open it up and yeah. see what's there. I agree completely. You know, um, I, I mean, for me, there will always be the desire for a physical book. But I also, I mean, I like reading electronic books. I'm used to it now. And there are times when I'm very happy to have one. You know, I think it's quite likely that in a couple of weeks or so I'll buy an iPad and it will take care of the problem that I have re- reading PDFs and life will be fine, you know. Um, but it will never get past the fact, you know, that, that I want the, you know, some things mm. I want the print book for. I mean, even Lou Anders, and this, this, he said this publicly yesterday, you know, uh, he's a great advocate of ebooks and he uses various ebook readers and iPads and da da da. Mm. And he was saying that there's a new William Gibson novel coming out in a few months. Uh, zero mm-hmm. history and he collects you know bill gibson in first edition hardcover he loves bill gibson and so does mm-hmm. he get does he buy the ebook and the hardcover or does he for the first time not buy the hardcover and he's torn because you know he, he's an ebook advocate for all sorts of good reasons mm-hmm. but he really loves the books as well you know and i guess part of the, the answer to this is all advocacy aside, there's no need to deci- to make a decision here. That there's not, there doesn't have to be an either or. But uh, we're all getting t- pulled different ways, and we also, the, our field likes to likes to sort of in, inflate these discussions into enormous things, as though you know mm-hmm. nobody, you know, you have to do this. You know, the ebook is coming. It's the death of paper. No, it's not. I don't think anybody who produces ebooks thinks that seriously, really. Um, and similarly, you know, uh, just because I love my my hardcover book doesn't mean I, you know, the ebook has no place. It's interesting to go back again and look at publishing history in the early '40s, or actually 1939, the absolute outrage about the death of publishing that was being caused by pocketbooks mm. uh, and 25 cent. 25 cent books i mean people if people, if people can buy books for 25 cents they're never actually going to buy a real book again and, and look at these horrible things that they're publishing in this format um and to, and by and large you know they everybody survived not 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 everybody's going to survive in the same form no no and uh, but but by and large yeah i think that, that that's why that's why i think it's wonderful somebody should put together uh, a collection of those uh, doomsaying essays from nebula awards volumes because it's just <laughs> absolutely uh, I, we we think dystopia has gone away as a, as a subgenre. It hasn't. It's gone into what we say about publishing. <laughs> yes, and of course you should publish that as an ebook because nobody would actually want to look at it very often. Well, exactly right. <laughs> so, oh boy, it's an interesting like field. It's a, it's it's a fascinating field, and I think uh, I think that collectors will always um, have physical books. I yeah. can't imagine this no. not happening. Uh, uh, I, I think that there are people who are first edition collectors who might be a little upset when they realize that if there's an electronic first edition of a Bill Gibson novel, which is simultaneous with a print first edition, that the electronic first edition has a potentially infinite number of copies. Mm-hmm. Uh, you can't say I have the only one because once it's out there, yep. anybody can have one. That's true. Um, so there's some of that possessiveness that's that, that, that might be challenged a little bit, but uh, mm. I'm, I'm, I can't bring myself to actually worry about uh, 
any of this happening in my lifetime. No. Any no. of this absolute disaster. There's one thought I, I would end up the podcast part of this with for a second, and that is of late I've come to the opinion that I think that the Vance Integral Edition project may be mm-hmm. the most important fan project of the last 10 or 20 years. Really? I'll tell you why. Um, by you know, creating an, an, a digital archive of Vance's work, mm-hmm. they made his work basically future, future uh, proofed. They made it accessible and available and whatever uh-huh. else. And they also did something which has almost never been done. There might be a few versions around of it, but if you follow popular music, mm-hmm. they're always putting out remastered versions of things. I mean, the most famous one right, right now is this Rolling Stones album, Exile on Main Street. Right. There's no real equivalent in book publishing. You know, I mean, yes, you might sort of polish things up a little bit, but mm-hmm. you don't go back to you know, the original master tapes and clean up right. that. And all. Well, that's what they did with the Vance Integral Edition. They went back to the manuscript archives. They tracked through from you know, all the various editorial mm-hmm. decisions that have been made to a particular work. They revisited those, da-da-da-da. It is one of the rare examples of a literary work, set of works being digitally remastered for the 21st century. And this is one of the reasons I've always said that fan scholarship is crucial to our field mm. because no university professor is going to do that. Um, no, it's going to have to be done by by people, and and it's it's you know it's an enormously difficult task of scholarship to do that sort of thing. And of course, the the other thing they've done is by creating a digital archive. I mean, because you, you'll see there are new editions of books done, but mm. generally a digital copy. And I don't know if this is something which listeners are, are aware of. A digital copy becomes the property of the publisher, not the author. So. Hmm. The digital copy doesn't get passed to the author at the end of the process. So let's let's right. so let, let's say you decide to I mean, okay. I, I edited the, the Locus Awards with Charles. A, a bunch of those stories had to be scanned in, and then they were copy uh-huh. edited and proofread and checked and da 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 da. At the end of it, we didn't get a, a copy of that back. We could have worked from the cop the, the submission stuff we did and created mm-hmm. it ourselves. So this means that even though quite often we think there are digital copies, there aren't. And that means that there is that portability from place to place. I mean, I'm, I've seen it because I've been working with some fairly re- recent people. I mean, I've just finished, as, as you know, the best of Kim Stanley Robinson. I got right. emailed yeah. the, the cover just the other day. So that's all set for publication in August, I think. Right. Stan was able to offer digital copy of one story. Really? Yes. And his entire career is post nine. He started what nineteen eighty two or three kind of thing. Right. Uh, and certainly as a novelist, it starts in the mid nineteen eighties. You would have thought some of it. I mean, the, the, what the Science and the Capital series. You would have thought there'd be electronic copy of. Um, I would think so. Yeah. Uh, you, you would have thought the, la- the later short stories, the stuff that went into the Martians, say. Mm-hmm. You know, which is probably. Or given that it gets reprinted all the time, you would have thought that something like uh, Escape from Kathmandu would be available. But not at all, no. And that's not unusual. I've, when I put together collections of old reviews and essays, I find myself thinking, I've got digital copies of this. And then I'm thinking, well, uh, yeah, I've got this disc, uh, mm-hmm. which got wet in 1989. And uh, you, you, there's a lot of stuff you think you have digitally. This happened with us at Locus, where we thought we had everything digital, and there's only some stuff. Yeah. So I'm sure any writer is like this, where you... Um, and you may even have digital copies, but they may not be usable, or they mm. may be corrupt. So, and this is so. So one thing I'd say, and someone like say uh, Charlie Strauss or Cory Doctorow will be all over this. I mean, I'll, I'll never forget one of the first times I met 
Charlie Strauss. He gave me his business card, right? And his business card, which was printed on one side, was a CD-ROM on the other side. And uh-huh. it, had, it had his entire collected works in it. Wow. That's <laughs> impressive. And keeping your, your work future-proof now is something that's important to do. But but what we need to do as well is to help future-proof, whether it's for ebook or print book, doesn't matter, right. uh, the great works of the past in the field is to find ways to get them digitized. There need to be digitizing projects so uh-huh. that, similar to the VIE kind of thing so that you can move forward and you'll have a day when, you know, the work is, is protected. I mean, one thing I hope is happening, and I don't know this, I haven't had the conversation with either of them, is that the collected stories of Robert Silverberg involves the creation of, for, for Bob's use, a, a, digital a digital archive of his short fiction. Because even if he doesn't feel that all of it's worth preserving, you know, it's good to have, have it all there so that it could be, you know, sort of accessed if it, it was needed. So right. one can hope. Anyway, I hope one hopes so. Anyway, this has been fun. Yes, uh, we shall we shall end it. I might give you a call back in a second, just at the end, of this for, for a second. Yeah, but, do that. But um, thank you again, podcasting. Yay! I'll okay, talk to you again excellent. Next week. Okay, take care. Talk to you again next week. Okay, bye. Okay, bye.